Grace on top. I'll give one of my, uh, I'll give my brief bio later, but I thought we'd start by singing. We've been doing that for the past two sessions. We don't have the amazing Joel to play the piano, but we have our amazing voices. So how about let's do it a cappella. Let's all stand and sing a song by All Sons and Daughters it's called Great Are You Lord. And if you don't know it, we'll repeat the verse in the chorus so you can get it. Let me see here. Since this is a cappella, I'll try to start at a key where everybody can sing. Let me see here. You give. No, no. I'm not going to do that. All right. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore. Great. 
at the same time, if once you know someone who focuses their time and energy in singing, it's so uh, habitual. It, like they just sing all the time. They can't stop singing. And so a singer is, is not is not just what they do; is who they are. And that's what worship is. Worship is not what we just do, but it's who we are. We are human beings. We are made in the image of God. We are uh, worshipers in our very essence, and our very bones. And so worship is more than what we do, but it's who we are. And so tonight, really want to focus on how, how do the habits, uh, how do we form our habits, and how do they shape our desires? So I want to begin with a question, and this question is this, really trying to see what, what are some of your daily habits and routines? Uh, what are some things, what, what do you do when you first wake up? What do you do you have a particular rhythm when you go to sleep? What, what are some of those things? So at this time, if you can get in groups of three to four and really discuss for about two minutes just some daily routines and habits that you have, and then we'll share a few of them with the group. So please, uh, you know, group up three or four. And the question is, what are some of the daily routines and habits that you have? Get up. 
in the morning. Now, do you all have a, do you have a particular time that you get up every morning at that particular time? Okay, I got you. Okay. Any other? Let's just open it up. Any other daily habits or routines that you have? Not new, but to brag on him, he's flossing daily. Oh wow, that's amazing, man! A daily flosser, amen. Anybody else? Two more people. How about that? Two more folks. Daily routines and habits. Coffee. Coffee. That's right. Gets you going. Reading the newspaper. Mmm, reading the newspaper. Wow, you actually read the newspaper, not look at it on your tablet or phone or laptop. That's amazing. All right. So for me, it's, it's my cell phone. You know, I wake up, like my cell phone is an extension of myself. You know, my alarm is set by it. I wake up, I grab the cell phone, I check my email, trying to see what's going on for the day. I might look at breaking news. Um, I look at sports, and so for me, it's, it's my cell phone really has, has become kind of my daily go-to, right? It's, it's with me all the time, and I, I have this book I want to show you. So, uh, The Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, I really recommend this book, and I'll be really quoting a lot from this book. So in terms of liturgies on the Monday through Saturday, because what we're talking about is worship formation through Monday through Saturday. How does Sunday influence our Monday through Saturday? And Tish Harrison Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, uh, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, she really goes into some serious depth and, and, and really gives you some hands-on practical things to do in your daily life. So to quote her, she says this, by reaching for my smartphone every morning, I had developed a ritual that trained me toward a certain end, entertainment and stimulation via technology. Regardless of my professed worldview or particular Christian subculture, my unexamined daily habit was shaping me into a worshiper of glowing streams. Without realizing it, I have slowly built a habit a steady resistance to and dread of boredom. And I was like, wow, that really describes me. Um, I, you know, if it's too silent, I really get antsy. I want to, like, check my phone. Or, like, you know, I, I, it's, 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 it's very interesting how just the liturgy of going to your phone creates the habit. And she said it there, a worship of glowing screens, a resistance to and a dread of boredom. Like having to have constant stimulation in your life. So when we think about um, worship uh, and spiritual formation, I really wanted to see how can I contextualize this <coughs> to Washington, D.C. And we all live in D.C. and we all know the things that D.C. worships and the, and, the, and the habits and the liturgies of what it's like to work in D.C. And so I thought about before, as, an, as a way of introduction, what I'm going to do, just to give you a heads up, I'm going to go into the five C's that uh, Joe, Pastor Joe Little Page uh, mentioned in, in 
week one and really reiterate it in week two. And so who can remember the five C's of worship that, that passed the little page? Uh, anybody remember the five C's? So called, cleansed, consecrated, communing, and commissioned. So I'm going to use those five C's and, and what Joel went through is in, in a worship service he, 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 he talks about worship as a feast, how we're called to the feast, how we're, how we're cleansed by the feast, how we are consecrated, how we are uh, commissioned, and how we, are, how we commune and how we commission. So I'm going to use those five C's and go throughout them and show what kind of daily habits can we uh, form with those five C's. But, but as a way of introduction, really want to address the kind of the DC uh, work-life uh, issues. And I thought I would quote three people, uh, Denzel Washington, <laughs> Margaret Feinberg, and A.W. Toza. I mean, it's like, you know, if you had them three in a room, I wonder what that conversation would be like. But this is what Denzel says. He said, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. My mother told me, yeah, because you can run in, a, in running place all the time and never get anywhere. Margaret Feinberg says, more than anything, the church is very, very tired. So many new programs, initiatives, and events, and in that place of exhaustion, we don't need the latest program or initiative as much as we need people who are falling in love with God and the scriptures. A.W. Tozer, it will cost something to walk slow in the parade of the ages, while excited men of time rush about confusing motion with progress, but it will pay in the long run, and the true Christian is not much interested in anything short of that. So I thought about that, that idea of you know, confusing motion with progress and how often we do that in our lives, right? How often we confuse our busyness with moving and going somewhere. But spiritual formation is not about being busy. Uh, it's, it's, it's doing or, or doing more spiritual things to, to add on to your already busy schedule. Uh, spiritual formation actually is about slowing down. It's about examining your life and making things simpler. Um, sometimes you have to slow down to make the right turn while everybody's speeding past you. Sometimes you have to be still and know that God is God. And like Elijah, sometimes you just got to be hidden in the cleft of the rock as the wind blows by, as the fire blows by to hear God's still small voice. And so my, my charge and, and, and exhortation but encouragement is to not to confuse movement with progress because Jesus waited 30 years before he began his public ministry. And this quote here from Tish Harrison, she says this, Christ's ordinary years are part of our redemption story. Because of the incarnation and those long unrecorded years of Jesus' life, our small, normal lives matter. If Christ was a carpenter, all of us who are in Christ find that our work is sanctified and made holy. If Christ spent time in obscurity, then there is infinite worth found in obscurity. 
If Christ spent most of his life in quotidian, I love that word, and I put the, uh, the, you know, the definition, ordinary, day-to-day, mundane, routine ways, then all of life is brought under his lordship. There is no task too small or quotidian to reflect God's glory and worth. So I thought about, before we head into the, the five C's of, of spiritual, of worship and spiritual formation, I really wanted to see, what did Jesus do? How was Jesus' life formed? What habits and liturgies affected Jesus' Monday through Saturday? And what I'm going to do is just take you through the book of Matthew. And I just looked at different things just happened over and over again. And I'll, I'll pause at certain instances. But before we get into the five C's, just want to say, okay, look, if we're going to model our life after anybody, why not start with Jesus, right? So here we go. So this is what Jesus, these are the liturgical practices of Jesus. And this is in Matthew 4, verse 1. He was led by the Spirit. Jesus Christ was led by the Spirit. You know, the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. How many of us wake up saying, you know what, Lord, I want you to lead me today. Uh, you know, we have our schedules, we have our goals, we, we know what we're going to do right on a daily basis, but how many of us say, you know what, Lord, I want you to lead me. I'm not going to trust in my own understanding. I'm going to acknowledge you in all my way, and I'm going to ask for your leadership. That's what Jesus did. He fasted in Matthew uh, 4 and 2. He taught in the synagogues. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He healed every disease and affliction. He gave to the needy in secret. He prayed. He forgave. He protected his eyes. He practiced looking at the birds and the lilies of the field to cure anxiety. And I'll just park right there. I mean, anxiety is a is an epidemic, right? We all, at some level, struggle with anxiety. And one of the things I just that struck me with Jesus is that Jesus would go outside, look at the grass, the lilies of the field. He would look at his creation, and it would assuage, it would calm him, it would, it would remind him that, yes, my father is the creator. That, as Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 6, 25, 31, why do we worry? Because if God takes care of the lilies of the field, of the birds of the air, and he feeds and clothes the grass, how much more his children? And so if you're struggling with anxiety, consider just going outside, looking at God's creation, slowing things out. And you can do that, right? Even if you have an office, just go outside. And how many of us just go outside to just look at God's creation and just be like, man, you know what? There is, there is something more here. It's just not my little cubicle or my little world. There is, there is something more. And so Jesus practiced just looking at his creation. Remember, in the beginning, when God created everything, he, he stood back and it's like, man, that's good. That's very good. And so how often do we just pause and just reflect on God's creation? Do we notice the clouds? Do we notice the sunset? Do we notice insects and birds? 
So consider the fields and the lilies of the fields. So more, he sought the kingdom and, and God's righteousness. He practiced self-care and self-evaluation before judging others. He asked, he sought, and he knocked in prayer. He practiced compassion. He was watchful of the false prophets that promise things that do not satisfy and end up killing us. He, Jesus says, beware of the false prophets because they come to you dressed in sheep clothing, but inwardly they are like ravenous wolves. How many of us are watchful and have a discerning eye and ear to false prophets in our life that promise things that do not satisfy, but inwardly those things are ravenous wolves? There are a lot of false prophets running around. There are a lot of false uh, prophets saying, you know what, this is what you need to get you through the week. This is what you need to, to quench that, satisf that satisfaction. This, you, don't, you know what, Sunday is, is, is too far away. You need this. And so Jesus was very watchful of false prophets. And you can see that throughout the Gospels. Um, he, promised, uh, he practiced doing the will of the Father. He bore fruit. He lived by faith. He practiced hospitality with those who don't agree with him or those that were different than him. Matthew 9, 11 says he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He made disciples. He looked for greatness in the least. He rested. He practiced humility. He lived with a childlike wonder because he said, with God, all things are possible. Only children think like that, right? This, this sense of impossibility, this sense that I could look out in the world in my life and anything is achievable and all things are possible. That's how Jesus lived his life. He practiced serving those around him. He practiced confronting sin and not being afraid to be vocal about holding people accountable. Not only did he drive out the money changers, but he was very vocal and confronted the Pharisees, right? Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus wasn't afraid to confront people. And how often do we not confront sin in our lives? How often do we not confront sin in other people's lives? And he lived in expectation of his second coming because in Matthew 24 and 36, he says, only the Father knows. And then finally, he fed the hungry. He gave water to the thirsty. He welcomed the stranger, he clothed the naked, he visited the sick and those in prison. Try to get, try to have a break at eight o'clock. So for those who are time conscious, we got about uh, 24 minutes, amen. <laughs> so he did these things, right? And he, but one of the things that really struck me was that Jesus made time for people. No one could inconvenience Jesus. Um, Jesus, he could have said, you know what, I'm busy, like, saving the world. <laughs> like, I don't have time for you, I got to save the world. Like, I don't have time for you, I have to bring down the kingdom. I don't, I don't have time for you, I have to make disciples and I have to fight spiritual forces. But Jesus never says those things. He had time for children. He had time to stop to heal a leper. He stopped to heal a woman who touched him. Remember the power went from underneath him and she touched the hem of his garment. 
He stopped to weep before, uh, after, you know, Lazarus had died. He stopped to weep. Before Jesus would say, Lazarus, come forth, he took time to weep. Do we stop, do we, do we take time to just stop and weep with people rather than try to fix their problems? Do we make that a practice? And he had time to tell stories. Do we tell stories on a daily, on a daily uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis? On a quotidian basis? <laughs> so he made time for people, right? Isn't it amazing how little time we spend with people in a given week? We can be working and busy and busy, but in terms of spending time with people, in terms of that quality where you can just rest and just share your story, share your life, or, con or confess, or whatever you need to do. And our culture says that power, progress, projects, and promotions are what's important. But Jesus puts an emphasis on people, on old people, young people, men, women, people of other cultures, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people of high and low reputation, people who had nothing to offer him. People who were needy and greedy. So where is the spirit of God leading you to make him known to the people that he has brought in your life? Who are the people that are in your life? Who are the people who are not like you? Who are the people that have nothing to offer you? And are we willing to make time for those people? So that's my word of introduction. So that's pretty much the answer, right, in terms of what does daily liturgies look like? Well, Jesus gives us a pretty comprehensive picture. And so uh, from now, I'm just going to flesh out some of those things through the five C's. So let's start with called. So the question is, whose voice do you hear at the beginning of your day? When you think about, Joel talks about this idea of calling to the feast. He talked about his mother who would call him in to eat. And that worship is a call to serve God. As a, God says, come before me with, uh, with singing and thanksgiving. Worship the Lord. So it's, it's, a, it's a command, right? There's a God calls and we respond. And so the question, when we look at our Monday through Saturday, whose voice do we hear at the beginning of the day? Is it the voice of breaking news? It's, is it the voice of, you know, uh, the email or whatever? Whose voice are we listening to? So I, I want to give you an illustration by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And does someone have that? 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you can read that for us, I'd appreciate that. This is 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. All right. And he said, I did not call, lie down again. 
and went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of God, the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel a third time. So he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived the Lord called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be. If he calls and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down and lay in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and stood and called as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Amen. I thought it was interesting, verse 1. God called Samuel at a time when the word of the Lord was rare and there were no frequent visions. It sounds like our current day, right? Anytime God's voice is not heard, another voice takes its place. And I talked about this. For many of us, it's, uh, you know, podcast, cell phone, an, e an email message, etc. And those voices shape and orient our lives. And we live in a day when there are no frequent visions and the word of the Lord is increasingly being drowned out by other voices. And so Samuel was instructed by Eli to lie down, and when he heard the voice to say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. You see, God is always speaking to us through his word. And many times the reading of God's word gets drowned out by other voices. God's word, as it says in Psalm 119, is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. So if, when our day doesn't begin with God's word, we're more susceptible to walk in darkness. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God wants to shape and form us every day, and he knows it must be done in the level of the thoughts and the intentions. God wants to capture our imagination. So that's my next point. God is after our imagination. James 1 verse 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And the Greek word for doers, uh, it, it, it has multiple meanings. It could be performer, producer, or poet. And the word is actually poetas, which, which we get our English word poet from. And so God is calling his worshiping community to be poets of his word, to have a divine imagination that affects your Monday through Saturday. Anybody Shakespeare fans? All right, we got a few. I'm going to quote Shakespeare. In this, in, in really parking here on imagination, he says, in the Midsummer's Night Dream, Act 5, Scene 1, Shakespeare writes, And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. That's the beauty of poetry. Giving to airy nothing, local habitation and name. C.S. Lewis, on his reflection on the psalm, says, It seems to me appropriate, almost inevitable, that when the great imagination, which in the beginning, for its own delight and for the delight of men and angels and in their proper mode of beasts, 
had invented and formed the whole word of nature, submitted to express itself in human speech. That speech should sometimes be poetry, for poetry too is a little incarnation, giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. So when we think about our imagination, when we think about being poets of God's word, when God has our imagination, he has our affections, and our affections operate in the realm of desire, emotions, and will, and passion. And so being a Christian is not just about not sinning, not lusting, not stealing, not cheating, or lying, but by being a follower of Jesus Christ means delighting in the fruits of the Spirit, delighting in joy, delighting in peace, Delighting in patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and loving God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So what we do not do as Christians, that doesn't define us, but we are defined by what we do. We are, we are defined by what we love. We are defined by our desires and affections for the things of God. So ask yourself this question, Lord, how can I be a poet of your word today? Lord, give me a divine imagination. We can pray this prayer. Uh, give me a childlike imagination. Lord, help me to hear your voice today. I know you're speaking, but I live in a time where visions are infrequent and the voice of the Lord is rare. Lord, please speak to me today. Because he is always calling. And because he's always calling, the call to worship is not just to his people. The call to worship is to all of creation. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And, and, they, show forth his, uh, they, and, they, and they show forth his knowledge to the earth to the ends of the earth, whether you're a Christian or not. So when God calls, when God, God is calling Monday through Saturday because he knows that everyone is a worshiper. And the call to worship God on Monday through Saturday is not just a singular call to individuals, but a universal call. God wants everyone to worship him because he has made each and every one of us worshipers. And we're all worshiping something. To, to drive this idea home, anybody know the rapper Macklemore? Anybody still listen to Macklemore? I know he's not come out with an album in a while. But uh, on his album, The Heist, which is probably one of his most famous albums, he had the, the huge song, Thrift Shop, where everyone you know, thought thrift shops were cool. But he had this song about the power of alcohol. And I thought about daily liturgies, right? What, what are some things that we might do on a weekly or maybe not a daily basis, maybe a weekly basis, right? Consuming alcohol. And I, and I found his take on the liturgy of going to the bar, the liturgy of drinking alcohol, and I'll read it for you. He says, round here they sing broken hymns. Their prayers flow better when they're soaked in gin. The Amsterdam sits in the corner by a bartender that'll pickpocket your heart, and a jukebox that'll steal your quarter. Bartender, please give me a confession. Exchange fear for courage in the form of a well drink. There's a heavy current, got a long way to swim, closed the Bible a while ago, 
I need some shots for this sin. And then he says, service starts at five tomorrow and I'll be right back. And he continues, I read the Bible, but I forget the verses. The liquor store is open later than the church is. That really hit me. Isn't that something? The liquor store is, lit, is open later than the church is. We, we have, and you'll see through this rap that he's really seeking for God. He says, wouldn't miss it for the world, baptizing my vices, and the bar is my church. Traded my artists, and I pawned off the easel, spend it all searching for God at the Neon Cathedral. That's his, so it, the liturgy of alcohol, right? The, the, the daily practices, the cravings, the desires. He says, I'm searching for God at the Neon Cathedral. But even if I would go to a church at what, you know, 5 p.m., I know we're open on 5 p.m., amen, on Sundays. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but uh, God bless you. But in terms of, like, that line, that really hit me. The liquor store is open later than the church is. That there are people who are roaming the streets of Washington, D.C., searching for God. And the only church that they can find is a neon cathedral. The daily liturgies that affect our habits and our appetites. So we're, we're all worshipers because we're all lovers. We were created with desires and longings and cravings and needs and hungers and thirsts and appetites. We were created with empty stomachs, with parched lips, and hungry imaginations for our divine creator. We are oriented to reach outward, to, to cry outward to the God that made us. We worship what we love so that the thing we love might love us back. If everyone is a worshiper, then what aspects of God's character can we seek to share and participate in with those who do not yet know God's character? And what I mean by that is there are aspects of God's character that people enjoy, that people fight for, that people crave and long for. People need to know that, get, that God cares about the same things that they care about. So if you look at the character of God, People need to know that, you know what, God is a God of love and justice. God is truthful. He is kind and merciful. He is gracious and patient. He is faithful. He does get angry, and he does get jealous, and he's wise. I mean, think about the people who are not Christian. They crave for these things. They crave for wisdom, for patience, for mercy, for grace, for love, for justice. For even holiness. I know of atheists that don't drink. I know of atheists that have higher moral standards than some people that go to church. And so holiness is actually something that even non-Christians long for. And God has it in his character. So praise. The Bible says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And his praise will shall continually be in my mouth. God calls us to praise. When we think about worship, it's a call to praise. It's a hallelujah. And I think Pastor Joel says hallelujah means y'all better get your praise on or something like that. I, I love his uh, rendition. And his NLT version, amen. Is that, is that it, y'all? The NLT version. <laughs> so God calls us to praise. So when you look at the hours of your day, whether you're eating or being on social media or watching the news or reading a book or working on a project, when do you make time to praise? 
to praise God. So how can the word of God be continually in your mouth? Okay, I got a few more things to say before that one. I got about seven minutes to, to finish up this call. So how can the word of God be continually in our mouth? The Bible says, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his word shall his word will continually, his praise should continually be in my mouth. And the only way for something to come out of our mouth is if it's in our hearts. And the Bible says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the question is, do we have God's word hidden in our hearts? Do we, do we memorize scripture? Do we make it a practice to memorize scripture? I'll tell you this story. So my wife, <clears throat> she's teaching our kids to memorize scripture. And the scripture is Psalm 121, verse 1 through 2. And it says, and we all know it, right? I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence come my help. And what's the rest of it? The maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Thank you, Lex. So that's the verse, right? She, she's teaching our kids this particular verse, and she wants them to memorize it because they're afraid of the dark and they have trouble sleeping. So she says, in a, in a way to get the word of God in their heart so that it, it can be continually at their lips and on their minds, and, and, and she wants to make it a habit so that when they're afraid, they can go to that verse, right? So she lines up our four, we have five, four that can talk. Uh, she lines up the four kids, and she's like, Judah, uh, from where does your help come from? And then he says it. Naomi, my daughter, she's like, well, where does your help come from? And she says it. Isaiah, my third, where does your help come from? And he says it. And then she comes to the, uh, the second youngest, whose name is Elijah, and she's like, Elijah. Now remember, she wants them to memorize this verse because they're afraid of the dark, right? And Elijah, <laughs> this is, she's like, Elijah, where does your help come from? And Elijah points to the hallway and he's like, over there. <laughs> because the hallway had the lights on. And he's like, that's where my help comes from. If I'm afraid of the dark, I'm going to the light. I'm going to the hallway. Amen? And that's why we need to memorize scripture. We need to know where our help comes from. Because some of us will be going to the hallway. So that's, you know, just an example. Of, you know, why, why, why do we need to memorize scripture? Why do we need to put it in our hearts? And for parents... Do your kids see you reading or memorizing scripture? For me, as a, as a pastor, I find this very convicting because I do a lot of my reading of scripture and reading in general at the office or when I'm not at home because I have five kids and there's no way you can read anything with that much uh, excitement going on. And so one of my, I, I'm not going to give you the whole story, but one of my kids was just like, I don't see daddy reading the Bible. And I was like, wow. So that really, that really hit me. How much of us read in front of our housemates? So do we memorize, do, do, we, do the people that know us see us interacting with scripture? On a, if it's not a daily basis, do they see you on a weekly basis interacting with scripture? Because it's not about performance or a legalistic thing or to try to show your badge, you know, that, hey, I'm a Christian. But it's because it's a daily habit. 
Singers like to sing. Worshippers worship. Lovers of Jesus love his word. That's just what it is. There's no, it's not, it's not, you know, I have to perform, but this is who I am. So that when people see you, they're like, man, you like to read. What are you reading? Well, you know, I'm memorizing scripture. Really? Scripture? You know, so I, I, like I said, I have a lot of work to do in, the, in this area of my own life and in my own home. But I see the power, even in my own kids, when they don't see me reading scripture. It affects their view of how to interact with the Bible. So I'll close with that. All right, let's, let me pray, and then we'll take a break. Um, and then I will do the other four C's, and then we'll have some time for some questions, hopefully. I'll try to get through some of this, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, oh God, that you would help us. Um, Lord, help us to put practices in our lives. Help us, oh God, to love your word. Help us to uh, not to mistake motion and movement for progress. Help us, oh God, to hear your voice the first thing in the morning. Help us, oh Lord, to be cognizant of the worshipers around us and the liturgies that affect them. Father, I pray that you, oh God, might instill in us a passion and desire for you that we are just image bearers. We are Christ followers. And that's who we are. We're unashamed. And the world sees it. So Father, I pray that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. We have, how many minutes is it? 10, 15. 10, 15 minutes. So uh, we'll get back here in 8, 15. How about that? 8, 15. All right. You are dismissed. There'll be videos in the next session for all of those who are tired, so.
But at the same time, not only sexual sin, but are we confessing, you know what, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm prideful this week. Or I, I just, I'm, I'm gossiping. Or I just, you know, I just, I don't have any self-control. Do we confess those things? Who are you confessing to? And are you a safe person for someone to confess? You know, I don't know about you, but have you ever confessed something to someone and then you heard it and then they told somebody, you like, really, what? What? I mean, I was just talking to you. And they said, well, did you hear what so-and-so said? So are you a safe person? And obviously, if it's sensitive information, right, if you are contemplating suicide or something like that, of course, people will find help. But in terms of just, you know what, I'm struggling with self-control. So when it comes to being cleansed, you know, I think about Romans 12 and verse 1. It says to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And we need to do this on a daily basis. Uh, in order for us to be formed, our previous form must change. Michelangelo said this. He said every block of stone has a statue inside of it. And it is the task of the sculpturer to discover it. So since the beginning of time, artists have sought to set free images they would believe were trapped within stone. It is a process of taking off unnecessary elements to form the stone into a beautiful work of art. And John Owen calls this process mortification. Mortification is the process where God, the master artist and sculptor, the Michelangelo of Michelangelo's, is sculpting away all the unnecessary things because he knows what you should look like. You should look like his son. And so mortification is a daily act in which sin is uprooted from the recesses of our heart. And one can't be satisfied with the killing of the fruits of sin without addressing the roots of sin. And only the Holy Spirit can mortify sin in us. And John Owen said, and I, I'm quoting John Owen here, this is a very hard thing to say. And I don't even know how many of us would like, yeah, that's me. But John Owen says this, he's a Puritan um, uh, pastor, preacher, theologian. He said, we are all sinners who have joined forces with Satan trying to usurp God from his eternal throne. Mm. Have you ever thought about sin in that way? I'm joining the devil and usurping the eternal throne of God. Whew. So sin isn't just simply bad deeds or faux pas or white lies. It is enmity against a holy God who demands complete obedience and total glory. And so man's natural bent is to dethrone God and put himself or herself on the pedestal. So the question is, how does God persuade enemies to become friends? How does salvation remedy the enmity that exists between God and man? John Owen answers these questions in the following way. He said, all the ways and methods of the, check, I, I really love this quote, he says, all the ways and methods of the dispensation of his will by his word, he says, all the ways and methods, keep that in mind, all the designs of his effectual grace are suited unto and prepared for this end. All the resources, all the methods, all the designs of God are suited and prepared for this end, namely, 
to recover the affections of men and women unto himself. Isn't that powerful? All of God's resources, all his designs, all of his plans are, are bent to get your affections. So God conquers our affections and the affections are the things that we love and desire and, and we know that this is an Augustinian view He says we are what we love. Man in his natural state loves to sin and the sin nature infiltrates our very affections. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So whenever we want to do right, evil is immediately present. When we, we love to do what we do not want to do and the things we do not, and the things we want to do, we can't do. And this is our condition. We're living paradoxes. Humans are born with a short-term memory. We remember the bad, but we forget the good. Suffering always seems nearer than deliverance. Yet the beauty of the gospel is that we are not alone in the fight, for we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who was tempted in every way just like us, but without sin. And he lives in heaven to intercede for you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the way, Saturday, Sunday, day in and day out. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's felt the same feelings. He knows exactly what it is. And he intercedes for you. So everyone has the same struggles, right, to varying degrees. Uh, and Owens, uh, John Owen discusses the notion of degrees of struggle in his work in Dwelling Sin. And the natural response to struggle with sin is isolation. It is easy to hide and live as if no one else understands my struggle. You know, the spiritual says, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Yes, somebody does know. Jesus knows. So true worship brings us out of isolation into a community. So the question is, who are you confessing to? Where, are, are you just living in isolation? Are you saying, you know what, this is my struggle. Nobody knows my struggle, my pain. Nobody knows what I had to go through. Nobody knows my story. And then we isolate ourselves. And then we, are, uh, and then we usurp the throne of God and we put ourselves on a pedestal. So true worship transforms us because it involves sacrifice and surrender. And whatever you sacrifice is no longer able to be enjoyed. And I talk briefly here about fasting. Um, fasting is a part of God's cleansing. Part of that sacrificing, right? Uh, presenting our bodies as living sacrifice. I don't have time to develop that, but I'm going to keep on moving. So consecrated. Remember your baptism. We, uh, when, when you think about Monday through Saturday, do you think that, you know what, today I am consecrated? And so this, this idea of remembering our baptism, uh, Tish Harrison, she says, we enter each new day as we enter the sanctuary by remembering our baptism. As Christians, we wake each morning as those who are baptized. We are united with Christ, and the approval of the Father is spoken over us. We are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that is given to us by grace. 
an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity we will don that day. We begin each day knowing that we are loved by God. We begin each day knowing that God took the initiation to love us while we were joined with Satan to, to usurp his throne, when we were powerless to respond in return, when we were oblivious to respond to the magnitude of his great mercy, our identities are not dictated by what our job titles are or how successful we are or even how much we failed or whether we're single or married. Our identities, as Tish Warren writes, is sealed in the, check this out, sealed in the Holy Spirit, hidden in Christ and beloved by the Father. That's a triple lock. It's sealed in the Holy Spirit, hidden in Christ, and beloved by the Father. As my Philly brothers and sisters would say, that's a clack, clack, clack. <laughs> so uh, when we think about being consecrated, oh, hold on, hold on, I want to get to that. Do we think about praying before every meal, you know, consecrating the very food that we eat every day? knowing that it is God who is the great giver of all gifts. You know, my, I asked my kids, I said, kids, do y'all know why we pray before every meal? And they're like, no. <laughs> so I said, all right, let me tell you. And I tell them on a, you know, not a regular basis, but I try to reinforce this. And I said, the reason why we pray before every meal is because we realize that my job is as a result of God's great mercy. My uh, my paycheck, this food, everything that we have is a, is a result of God's great love for us. Because the Bible says that God is the Father of lights and he, he is the giver of all good gifts. So any, anything that's good that you have is because of God. And so we present everything to, for, to, for his glory and toward that end. And that's why we pray before every meal because we know that this food has been provided by our Heavenly Father. All of life is sanctified. So I'm going to show the, uh, this video. And I'm sure some of you probably, it's a Facebook viral sensation. Of a little boy praying, and I believe he was at school. This little boy was praying uh, for this food with his classmates. Check this video out. This habit of praying before my meal trains me in a way of being in the world 
It reminds me that my personal experience is not what determines whether or not something is a grace and a wonder, and that some of the most astonishing gifts are the most easily overlooked. How many times do we just overlook our meals? Just like, you know, I'm hungry, I just need to get something to go to. I had pot bellies, you know, I just need to fill my stomach. You know, give me, I need some Thai food, I need some, you know, I feel like this type of food today, right? And then we overlook the wonder that God provided that. That God, God, is, God is such an amazing chef that he's provided different ethnic foods and different tastes. And it's just, it's amazing. I don't know about you, but when I go to Absolute Noodle, it's a wonder and amazement. <laughs> I thank God for that miso ramen. Oh, Lord, hallelujah. Mike knows what I'm talking about. And I get the same thing every time because it's a liturgical practice. <laughs> my quotidian practice. <laughs> you know, when something's good, you keep on going back to it. Amen? You know, why change? Right? So Jesus says this. He, 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 Jesus says that a man or a woman shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8, and I'll read it. Uh, the word of God says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness and that, that so, so that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make known to that, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did y'all see that? He says, I took you in the wilderness for 40 years, and I made you hunger. I let you hunger. I let you be hungry. And that really hit me. Because if Sunday is the promised land, Monday through Saturday, a lot of times, feels like the wilderness, right? We, we, that's when we are hungry. And God puts his people through the wilderness to test to see, do they really want me? Do they really love me? Will they really obey my commandments? Do they really want me to feed them? So Monday through Saturday might be the wilderness, but even in the wilderness, they got manna. So you still need a word. God let them hunger to see what was in their hearts. And so God is testing you Monday through Saturday to see, will you live by bread alone or by every word that I give? What, what's what's going to feed you on this, this Monday through Saturday? And that's why we need the body. The body helps us, right? Our relationship with God is described as a refiner's fire in Malachi 3. And so the purity of his fire burns away our impurities. But humanly speaking, he calls our relationships with one another iron sharpening iron. And since we're the same material, we will both be changed. Isn't that something? The body of Christ is described as iron sharpening iron so that we both can be changed. Do you avail yourself to the body of Christ? Do you make yourself vulnerable to people? Have you ever had conflict in the church or with God's people? And not having conflict does not equate 
a healthy relationship. <coughs> healthy conflict is the result of a healthy relationship based on commitment. If you're in a healthy, here's the thing, I, I know some of us don't like conflict, but a healthy relationship, you will, in, you will inevitably have conflict. It's bound to happen because iron sharpens iron. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for someone to look at you and say, you know what, you got to work on some stuff. You know, you don't have it all together. Or, man, you know what, what you did there, that's amazing. I can never do that. I mean, that's, that's so you, that you're so unique. Iron sharpens iron. Uh, and Tish Harrison calls this, she calls, she talks about this call and response uh, relationship. She talks about how the body of Christ can be like a call and response friendship. She says this, Christian friendships are call and response friendships. We tell each other over and over, back and forth, the truth of who we are and who God is. Over dinner and on walks, dropping off soup when someone is sick, and in prayer over the phone, we speak the good news to each other, and we become good news to every other. And we do this because we're in this together. We are God's body. We are God's people. What happens to you affects me. What happens to me affects you. We're in this together. We, we go into the same place. It's like we're all in a car driving to the same destination, which is heaven, which is glory. So for all, have you ever driven in a car with a bunch of people and someone's too loud or a little bit annoying or they, you know, they're picking the, the nose or the finger that likes this. It's just like, you know, stop it, right? I need to get to my destination in peace. And that's what, it's, that's what it's like to be in the body of Christ. We're all in this minivan going to heaven. And your, whatever, your, your issues affect me. And my issues affect you. And that's the beauty of what it means to be in a body. Amen? That we're in this together. We're not alone. And so the body is used to consecrate us, to, to remind us of who we are. Uh, Alright, so let's go to our I think this is the fourth C here, which is communing. Uh, George knew that I want to talk about prayer as one way we can commune with God. And, and I've shared this quote in the sermon before, but I'll say it again. George Mueller, a 19th century English evangelist and a great man of prayer, said these words. He said, prayer is not necessary for the sake of informing God. But prayer is necessary simply because it is the appointment of God and he will have us go to him for our own good and profit and blessing, asking him for the things we require because the blessing bestowed on us in answered prayer is so much more precious than if the blessing were without prayer. Often and often God allows us greatly to be tried in order that at last when the blessing does come and prayer is answered, it may be all the more precious. Is prayer precious to you? Is, is, is spending intimate time with God on a Monday through Saturday, on a day-to-day -day basis, is it precious? Do you, do you see that, that prayer is not necessary for the sake of informing God? Because the Bible says that he knows our need even before we ask it. And, but the, the reason God asks the reason God has uh, given us the gift of prayer is so that we can see how precious God is. That we can pray to our Heavenly Father and He answers back. He's not a God who's dead, but He's alive. So whatever you hold is precious is valuable to you. And whatever is valuable to you 
receives the most attention. I don't know about you, I, there are times in my life I feel like, man, do you, have you been around people that can just pray? You're like, man, that's a praying person. That's a prayer warrior. I want them to pray for me because I know God hears them. <laughs> so Thomas Watson, in his book, The Godly Man's Picture, he says this, it is not the valuable tongue, but the melting heart which God accepts. Oh, says a Christian, I cannot pray like others. As Moses said to the Lord, I am not eloquent. But can you weep and sigh? Does your soul melt out of your eyes? God accepts brokenness, accepts broken expressions when they come with broken hearts. Sometimes you don't even have the words to say. God accepts it. He accepts your tears. He accepts your sighs. He accepts just you're shaking your head and you're like, Lord, not again. And God hears that. And that's praying. You don't even have to have words because God knows what's in your heart. So you, we can bring our full emotions before God Monday through Saturday. So when it comes to communing, obviously, uh, we talk about this idea of Thanksgiving. But the table and our table, we, we, we commune each Sunday, the Eucharist, the Lord's table. But in the invitation for us to, co to commune with God, God also invites us to commune with others. And that comes through hospitality. So here's my question for you. Do you invite others into your space? Do you go out seeking for others? Do you make time for people on a weekly schedule? When you think about hospitality, are you the one that says, you know what, no one's inviting me anywhere. I haven't, you know, nobody invited me to that party or nobody invited me to that dinner. A hospitable person says, you know what, if people ain't inviting me, I'm going to invite them. I'm going to go out and invite and say, you know what, come over. I'm, I'm fixing some good food and I want to get to know your story. And I want to close with uh, commission, the final seat. So whose voice are you hearing at the end of the day? The call is at the beginning, the commission is at the end. God calls us to worship him Monday through Saturday and he commissions us with his blessing at the end of the day. So whose voice do you hear at the end of the day? Because the voice we hear at the end of the day, it shapes our affections for the next day. <coughs> and one of the things that God uses to commission us, to send, send us out to to, to, to send us out in, in, in formation is through story. That's the tool that he uses. And this is James K. Smith. He says this. He says, the way to the heart is through the body, and the way into the body is through story. And this is how worship works. Christian formation is a, converse, is a conversion of the imagination affected by the spirit who recruits our most fundamental desires by a kind of narrative enchantment, by inviting us narrative animals into a story that seeps into our bones and becomes the orienting background of our being in the world. James Smith says the narratives, that narratives aren't really trying to change your mind. They're trying to captivate your imagination. They work on the basis of metaphor they become the background horizon by which we see and live in the world. So the question is, what story?
stories are you inhabiting Monday through Saturday? What is capturing your imagination? And what are the stories that are antithetical to the, to the gospel that we allow in our lives without any discernment? James Smith, I'm gonna show you this video. He talks about the narrative of racism and how it co-ops people's imaginations. Here, here his words. I want to risk our discomfort by, by giving us an example so that we can feel the tension of this. And the example I want us to think through with this lens is racism. Listen, racism is not merely an ideology. Racism is not just a teaching. It's not just a set of beliefs. Racism is absorbed in the scripts of a culture that enact and perform a story about superiority and supremacy, narratives about exclusion and fear, and myths of purity and danger. So, the reason, I want you to see why this makes a difference to frame it in this way. If you tell me you don't believe the ideology of racism, that is almost irrelevant. It's almost irrelevant. I mean, it's not nothing. But here's the thing, you can, not believe the ideology of racism on an intellectualist register and still have been completely co-opted at the level of the imagination by the scripts of a racist imaginary. The question is, have you absorbed the story, not do you believe these claims? Hmm. Have you been caught up in the scripts of this cultural liturgy has your imagination been co-opted by a racialized social imaginary without even realizing it, such that now you make your way in the world animated and oriented by a story that is antithetical to the gospel and counter to the narrative arc of scripture, which ends with a choir who sings from every tribe and tongue? So what are the stories that are forming us is it autonomy, superiority, meritocracy, racism, hedonism? You know, in America, we, we believe in freedom, right? That's a huge value. And Americans are very proud of their freedom. And with autonomy, it means that, you know what? I'm accountable to no one but me. Nobody can judge me. I'm free. This is a free country. I can do what I want. And that's and and, and on when I say that, you're like, no, I would never do that. But that's the story that we inhabit. We believe that we're exceptional, exceptional, and superior to other cultures. So we love competition. We love to compete because we know we're Americans and we will win. I'll close with this. Jonathan McReynolds, who's a famous uh, gospel, contemporary gospel singer, he wrote the song, Make Room. And I'll just quote it right here. He says, I'll sing it, actually. I'll just sing it. He says, I find space for what I treasure. I make time for what I want. I choose my priorities and Jesus, you're my number one. 
Is Jesus your mind? That's what God is calling us into the Monday through Saturday. To find space, to make time, to choose your priorities and make Jesus Christ the number one thing that captures your imagination. Make Jesus Christ the number one person that you bring into every relationship. Make Jesus Christ the number one person that influences your imagination and captures your affections and your desires. And it's, it's a struggle because we have to mortify sin every day. But the beauty of the story of the gospel is not that America has won, but that Jesus has won. And that he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ever making intercession for us on a day-to-day -day basis. So every day is filled with meaning. Every day is filled with an opportunity for God to make himself known in your world. Every day is filled, Monday through Saturday, is filled with so much potential and mystery and imagination and affections for the one who calls you by name. You know, um, I don't know people's names, and I'm very bad at names. And, you know, I, I'll say this real quick, and, and Melanie is right there, and I, I remember, I, I was like, Melanie, I see your face all the time, but I'm so sorry, I don't know your name. And when she told me her name, Melanie, Melanie, I was like, okay, I can remember that. And now when I say Melanie's name, it's like, it's, there's, there's a difference. I have a different relationship with Melanie than I did before. And that's the beauty of what, of what God has done. He calls us by name every single day. And he says, you're loved. You are, you are clothed in my, my son's righteousness. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. All right, so I'm just going to open it up for questions. I think we have uh, maybe 10 minutes. Any questions? You know, I, I was talking to Kristen, amen, <laughs> I'll tell you about her names, I was talking to Kristen about this idea of imagination, I, I really want to delve into this, and I really, for me, I see it by just when I'm around my kids, one of the th kids, you know, when it comes to new ideas, right, everything is new. But what's interesting about kids, they like to read the same story over and over, and over again. And I just, or like we'll go for a walk somewhere. Like I'll say, all right, kids, we're going to walk around the block. And I, I'm, I'm set on, we're going to walk around the block. And then as we walk, they just, look at that flower. Did you see that? Look at that snail. Daddy, there's an earthworm. And I'm like, come on, we got to go. And so I think, what it, God wants to capture your wonder. He wants, to, he wants you to slow down like a child. 
And he wants you to see maybe a different side of something that you always see. Because the beauty, you know, the beauty of the imagination, what helps me to imagine is, 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 to, is to sit and wonder, is to ponder and to roll over my mind over and over and over again. And I think it's not necessarily new ideas or new systems. Of, it's, it's about really slowing down and appreciating what's in front of you. Because a lot of time you can overlook things in front of us. It's, so for me, you know, you ask, how can you, God, how can you capture my imagination? It could be with your wife, Naomi, like, Lord, you know, I don't know how long you've been married. But it's like, what new aspect of Naomi can you show me today or this week or this year? Lord, I've been doing this job for a lot, or I don't know if you're retired or not. Lord, I'm retired. Let's just say, I have a lot of time on my hands. Lord, what, what would you have me to do with this time? And then, and then living with an expectation that God will answer that. You know, the Bible says that God will do abundantly more than we can ever ask, think, or imagine, and I believe we, 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 we ask God prayers, right? And there's nothing wrong with it, but God wants to blow our imaginations. And I think it's about the magnitude, honestly. Maybe the imagination could be, maybe it's not your home, maybe it's your neighborhood or your city. Lord, what would you have for me to do in DC? Or maybe my neighborhood. And living with an expectancy that God will show you. And seeing every moment is charged with God's calling, with God speaking and God talking to you. And so really, I, I would just say, it, it can mean 